And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us in 2020. This is the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We are so happy to return. We have a lot of amazing articles for you here this morning. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. The Edible History of Confetti via Atlas Obscura by Crystal Weil Menegas. Um, so what do you all know about confetti? I mean, we just celebrated a new year. Did you have confetti uh, at your celebration or see any? I know it's a big mess. Yeah. That's a- <laughs> I wasn't around any confetti this new year. I, I, I did go to bed at 930, uh, which um, a parent of a two-year-old kind of thing to do. But confetti, as I understand it, uh, you know, basically you take some paper, you cut it up to tiny, tiny pieces, you know, colorful paper. Mm -hmm, Hopefully mm -hmm. you got yourself some confetti, right? That's pretty much what we're used to. to, You're about to blow my mind apart, aren't you? I'm hoping to. Uh (laughs) Confetti was not always paper. (gasps) What? (laughs) (laughs) What was it? Well, now we know it is paper, which is somewhat floaty and harmless, but... That only happened because society got fed up with the candied version. It used to be edible. Like they're throwing sugar in the air, basically. Pretty much. So the (laughs) etymology here, confit is an old English term Mm. for the sugared pan candy Italians called confetti. They were innocent looking snow white sweets that were basically almost used as ammo. I mean, because they were heavy pieces of candy. So, you know, the idea of of showering uh, edibles, it it dates back to really, really olden times, right? Like even the Old Testament, Exodus 16.4. The Lord said unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day. So this idea of bounty falling from the heavens, like it's a celebratory kind of thing, almost like redistribute wealth or, you know, feed the masses, etc. We still throw rice, yeah. We still Not cooked. Right. Wouldn't, right. wouldn't advise. <laughs> be a little wet right. and sticky. And even then, I think there's it. been some backlash in terms there of- There has. You, know, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. Because first of all, the birds will pick it up and it makes them sick. But mm-hmm. second of all, the all of the wedding venues and churches and everything, they're like, we don't want to pick this up. Yeah. They will charge you huge amounts of money if you put rice all over the ground. They're like, no, you can use sparklers or bubbles or things. <laughs> there's a lot of substitutes that have come up in recent gotcha. years. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is because uh, there are a lot of hazards when you're pelting people with foodstuffs. <laughs> Um, So this, like, you know, um, natural showering of food, it became a community ritual, especially for weddings like we've talked about. The Roman emperor Nero even popularized the sparsio, which was defined as throwing things among the multitude to be scrambled for in scenes of wild disorder. Like a pinata, like it's that mob mentality of everybody get down on the ground and fight each over of, each other over the yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, the pinata's yeah. probably a nice descendant for it, but the with the Sparcio in particular, these, these were during the gladiatorial games. Quote, many thousand <laughs> articles of all descriptions were thrown amongst the people to scramble for, including fowls of different kind. Like whole birds? Whole like birds. Wow. Beasts of burden and and seems like it would be a burden to actually throw to the people. Yeah, you're like yeah. flinging a donkey onto the crowd. That sounds really dangerous. I mean, but it did keep people yeah. happy and distracted from leadership shortcomings, you know? Like it's a, you know, hey, you're getting a donkey out That's here. That's right. It may be thrown at you, but it's yours now. We That's are right, throwing right? food at you. I mean, come on. It's a very, a very Dionysian kind of yeah, you know, vibe to it, right? A crowd of people like rending each other to bits to, to <laughs> right. get at or rending the a fowl. Treat. That's and right, the tearing the leg of the donkey off. Yeah. That's that's. Uh... But, but still, in the name of celebration, right? Mm-hmm. So, in the 1400s, when sugar became widely available in Europe, confectioners began glazing dried fruit, nuts, spices, and seeds 
and the sugared almonds were particularly prized. You guys ever had a Jordan almond? They're sharp, though. That's like you could put somebody's eye out with that if you're throwing it. Well, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Did we put somebody's eye out? In the late 1820s, William Gunter, an English candy man visiting Italy, observed a tragic accident involving sugared almonds. <laughs> Quote, they pleasantly pelt each other with these trifles, he wrote in the Confectioner's Oracle. The uh, Confectioner's Oracle. Yeah. <laughs> that is the most amazing trade newspaper name. The Confectioner's <laughs> Oracle. Right? I feel like with the rise of astrology, like there has to be a website called the Confectioner's Oracle at this point. Um, but at this particular food fight at Carnival, he wrote, but an English country gentleman threw his confits with such savagery that he actually put out one of the eyes of his young bride. Oh, oh right, to his own bride, too. Like, just got her right in the face. Just and... totally tragedy. I mean, you know, the idea was that you could toss ever so lightly a sugared almond at an attractive person that you're suiting, saying, like, it's like a wink, right? Like a long-distance wink. Like, hey, you're... You're looking fine. I want to get to know you better. Somebody's always got to ruin it. They ruin the fun for everybody. I particularly blame uh, the munitions department at Brackier, France. They made artillery shells to shoot these sugar almonds sky high. <laughs> I the, mean, wait, wait. They had a munitions department. At yeah. the candy factory. They're because, like, you, know, you are in charge of just the projectiles. Because, you know, when you've got a sugared almond, you've noted they're hard. You know, they're somewhat aerodynamic. Once they've been glazed, they've got those pointy ends. Wouldn't it be so much more grand if you could just shoot the yeah. bazonka out just of it? Just shotgun them just it's everywhere. Exactly. All across the crowd. Kids still have those marshmallow shooters. Yeah, yeah. the little marshmallow yeah, guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is softer. Soft. Yes, yeah. notably soft, the famously nerf, soft. The Nerf air gun of the candy throwing world. <laughs> right? I, I tell you, though, you can injure somebody with a Nerf air gun. Like, they, they, they can go pretty fast. We can all find a way. And um, But basically, in the 19th century in Italy at Carnival, which must be a super wild time, lobbying sweets devolved into a new innovation. They basically made confetti that looked like sugared almonds, but was actually made of plaster of Paris. Oh, so people would try to eat them. That's a really good idea. And, and I think it was also just you knew you were going to get pelted with stuff. Maybe there was, you know, a run on almonds. Maybe the price had gone up. Plaster of Paris was more easily available. But this essentially made wearing protective wire masks now like <laughs> essential gear for carnival. And and you know what? People had enough. They just had enough. People were getting injured. They had to wear wire masks. Totally. That takes out all the fun. <laughs> it does. If you've got to wear a wire mask to the party, it's not going to. Yeah. So that's why paper confetti wafted to the rescue in the 1890s. So obviously the advantages are clear and that's why we have paper confetti. Cleaner, now. easier, saves lives. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like we're poised for the pendulum to go back the other way because now you're talking about like, your paper. I'm thinking, you know, there's waste. We're into like, mm -hmm. you know, conserving things a little more now. I can see that we're right on the poise of a comeback of like, no, let's have reusable confetti. Let's mm -hmm. make it plaster of Paris because it melts and it's not, you know, harmful to the environment. We're going to go right back. <laughs> To injuring people, I think. But yeah. hopefully nothing that requires artillery shells. Hopefully not. My proposal, stop celebrating stuff. You've got nothing to celebrate. <laughs> There's just, no joy. Yeah. Just quit pretending. Just hit the pause for a good decade <laughs> on getting too full of ourselves at See any moment. See if we moment. can earn it back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Rude. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay. This is from The Guardian, an article by Alex Hearn uh, entitled, Mystery of Rolling Stones tracks posted briefly on YouTube. So, on December 31st, a YouTube account called 69RS Tracks <laughs> went live and it posted a number of rare Rolling Stones recordings from 1968. Hours later, on January 1st, it made all the recordings private and inaccessible. So, they were Ooh. online for a few hours. 
in a form seemingly designed specifically to thwart bootleggers or collectors because each video also included a loud tone mixed in that basically made the music unlistenable. Mm -hmm. huh. The intention it was likely an attempt by ABC Co. Uh, to extend their copyright under EU oh. law. So it wasn't even about letting people listen at all. It was, we've published this now. Right. Wow. Yes. EU copyright law protects the copyright for 50 years, but allows for a 20-year extension or anything that has been, quote, lawfully communicated to the public. So broadcast in some form or another. So, I mean, this is like ABC Co. is like, you know, they're just touching the tree and be like, home base, I'm safe. Yeah. You know? And then take it off yeah. quickly yeah, so nobody take, else can take, actually get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not new. There was actually a European Bob Dylan rarities collection called the Copyright Extension Collection <laughs> that they put out. Just in, own up to it. Right? So yeah, yeah, they put out in 2012 and they only sold 100 copies of it. But And it's like um, to all of like their friends and neighbors. They're like, we're selling this to you and I give it back. Right, right. Well, I'm sure like those copies probably are all available on eBay for like thousands of dollars right. since it's, you know, a yeah. hundred item rarity. But um, it's a basic maneuver to extend the copyright for uh, rare unreleased recordings so that the company can sit on them and figure out, you know, get right. 20 how more exactly years do like, we want to release Oh, this? how are we going to package this in some expensive vinyl deluxe reissue of... Uh, Wait till Mick Jagger's dead, fingers, basically. You know? They're yeah, like, you... we're holding on to this until... It almost seems like a calculated risk to see like how little can you do that counts as lawfully. I mean, I could set up a pair of speakers and just play it out of your house and be like, "Hey, yeah, I played it. it." Yeah, was I was lawfully communicated mm -hmm. to the the public, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. So obviously, we are old old enough to remember Y two K, right? You guys remember what you were doing on the e New Year's Eve of nineteen ninety nine? Probably listening to the Prince song. Yeah. That's, I think yeah, we, we, that got a lot of play back then. Inescapable at that time. Yeah. I was, uh, I think I was at my parents' house. <laughs> I, think, I think I was, uh, I was not at a cool party. <laughs> See, I think we, I was at my parents' house. I was at a very small gathering of friends and we spent the whole evening watching apocalyptic movies back to back. Oh, <laughs> like yeah, we had, you know, cool. Running Man and we just, we, we watched them all because there was definitely a feeling at the time of like, we don't know what's going to happen. Sort of there's the panic and everybody feels like that's probably a little overblown, but also things could actually break with the Y2K issue of the years rolling over in the computers. So obviously it all turned out fine, but the bug itself was real. And largely the reason it turned out fine was because computer programmers and developers at all these companies rushed in and fixed it. They said, oh, we got to make our years four digits. And some of them apparently did not make their years four digits. Instead, mm. they did other quicker, simpler workarounds. One of those companies includes Parkeon, who is in charge of uh, automated parking meters throughout the world. They have uh, contracts in most major cities. They have tens of thousands of parking meters everywhere. And whatever workaround they did had another end date. And that end date was January 1st, 2020. They oh, right. put in an end date on their software, just sort of assumed like, well, and obviously when that time comes, we'll extend it. We'll update the firmware. Obviously, we're not going to be using the same software then that we are now. Uh, that didn't happen. So this is uh, from Gothamist, from Ben Yakis. There was apparently, and it's still ongoing, a major computer crash with all of the automated parking meters in New York City and around the world. Uh, on January 1st, 2020, they stopped being able to process credit card payments, which is how you go through and pay. Right. They do technically take coins, and there is an app 
that you can use to sort of pay through the app with your credit card and then you somehow get something that you can put on your car and it's okay. But fundamentally, all of the parking meters crashed because of Y2K20 mm-hmm. is what they're calling it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it, it has been a big issue. Apparently, they said we, they had no idea it was coming. Nobody was prepared. And they all just stopped working and they figured out how to make it work. But now they have to individually, a person has to go to the parking meter and update the software. Now that it's oh. broken, they can't get in there any other way. And there are 14,000 meters in New York City alone. So Department of Transportation officials are going out there and upgrading these one by one. And, you know, Mayor de Blasio is very angry with Parkeon and everyone's like, these guys are going to pay. But are they going to pay in the end? We don't know. Uh, But it's just uh, it's a little bit of a snafu going on in New York right now. And apparently six months ago, a similar bug from a similar type of thing, a sort of timing out of the date function, affected the wireless network used by all the city agencies. And apparently the New York government was oh. without internet for 10 days oh. last summer. Really? Yeah. 10 days, And man. I didn't hear about that at the time, but this article sort of linked to a previous article going, you know, you'd think we would have learned our lesson and they didn't. 10 days. Yeah. Wow. So, which, it's just hot spot off your phone? I think they probably <laughs> made it work. That's probably why, because 10 days is very hard for like a government agency to do yeah, nothing. A you major know? city government. This also, I heard this also afflicted, uh, afflicted, uh, the latest iteration of the WWE like video yeah, every year world wrestling puts out their game you know and, oh, and oh, it's like always, a video game and, yeah and it's always like WWE 2019 so this was that case was especially embarrassing because the game was literally called WWE 2020 and then you know January 1st 2020 the game stops Broke. working for everyone <laughs> because they can't verify something i mean i'm sure they probably were able to fix that pretty quickly yeah but you don't want to anger you know wrestling fans or video game fans and the venn diagram of those two boy (laughs) you'll get the you'll get the kendo stick to the the head and they're gonna start throwing almonds at you if you're not careful (laughs) (laughs) oh man the confectioner that's a great gimmick for uh, that would be a fantastic wrestler. Like he'd come out with like, and he'd throw candy necklaces to the crowd, yeah. and uh-huh. like he'd be he'd he'd have a lot of puns about how he's sweet, but also he can be bitter. And... Yeah, that's good. <sighs> Confection Mancy, like you can get gummy worms to just shoot out of your sleeves. Yeah, yeah, that's a good move. <laughs> right. Oh, this one's got legs, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. What do you guys know about the American coot? Zero. Just like like an old fella, like a like an old. <laughs> I can picture him in like a museum. It's like you've got all your taxidermied animals and then you get this old prospector guy and it's like, here we have the American coot. (laughs) His whole body shellacked. uh, (laughs) Known for their cantankerous and ornery dispositions. (laughs) Get David Attenborough to narrate. Oh, oh, he makes everything better. Well, Ed Young for The Atlantic um, wrote an article about the survival advantage of being a fancy baby coot. Um, so, <laughs> a wait, fancy so baby are, coot. There are coots and then there are fancy baby coots. Yes. The babies are fancy, and that's kind of what this goes around. So, um, spoiler alert the coot is a bird. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, mature American coots have these drab color schemes. They have black bodies, white bills, whatever. What a snoozer of a bird. But their babies, their chicks, have what Ed Young describes as an aesthetic that's part drunk friar, <laughs> part disheveled lion. And part tequila sunrise. And if you have a chance to look at this article, they've got a picture of this little baby bird. And it is a riot of color. It's amazing. And this is notable because most birds that have baby chicks have really drab, dull, camouflaged 
one. So it's easier for them to survive at their very, very young age. Right. And they get pretty as they get older because that's their their sexual mating, you know, exactly. display. Exactly. They're ornamental as a way of kind of a mating ritual. And that's really famous in the bird world. And there's been some really cool studies on that as well. So what's up with the American coot? Why are the babies all Muppety, you know? <laughs> do we know? Is that, do we don't have any idea? Well, we've done some studies that have showed. Um, so first of all, they basically have like bald heads that are bright red. Their necks are encircled in this scruffy yellow orange kind of plume. They, they legit look like little Muppets. It's amazing. They hatch one by one over the span of a week, which means that they're competing for parent food and attention. So usually the youngest ones don't make it. And what the American coots do is... They lay more eggs than they know they could possibly ever take care of. Yeah. So there's this built in kind of hedge like, you know, we're going to lay a bunch of these. We're going to lose a few. We're going to lose about half. Actually, (sighs) it's a huge amount. So Mm. half of all chicks die before they're even a week old, which is why the adults overproduce. So after this first culling week, the parents start to change their behavior. So they each now start to pick a favorite among the survivors and provide (laughs) that one chick with 80% of the food that it collects. So not each parent picks their own chick, though. So it's like a, it's, there's like a little competition of like mommy's favorite and daddy's favorite. You know, I think it might be just the parents as a unit, but... Um, oh, maybe, yeah. Either way, the disparity <sighs> of inequality a, is, yeah. is shocking that regardless. Is a tough family dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> really? And what happens to these favored babies is that they grow rapidly because they're getting 80% of the resources, and the unchosen siblings are basically grabbed by the head vigorously shaken and chased away. So in the 19th, oh, no. it's super brutal. So the shallowness of the parents caused this evolutionary trend towards these fabulous baby that's birds. That's interesting because that's usually for sexual selection right. in the animal. This is just survival yeah, now. But, Things are getting but this brutal. this is like for parental like favor. Exactly. Yeah, which is more more akin to, to humans. That's true. These birds, you know, we have a lot in common. I know they're, they're American the kids. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of people American I know coots. do favor their their cutest kid. That's oh right. yes, and let the other two or three kids fight Starve. for resources. They just don't even <laughs> feed them. <laughs> but but the behavior of, upon the parents here doesn't stop there. Oh, it gets worse. It changes again. So once the initial clutch has been culled to an affordable size. <laughs> Parents wow. tend to focus on the young remaining chicks while then violently neglecting the oldest ones. I guess they get seized by a spate of regret or something. But basically, the oldest chicks are now big enough to start finding their own foods. So the parents are like, that's it. Get out. We've given you every, we've sent you to private school. You went to Ivy League. You've got all the resources. Get out of the house. Sink and now, or swim. Oh, my little baby. I've, I've, I shouldn't have paid more attention to you. Which and... again is like humans. Like, you got to take the youngest of the brood and you're like, well, we're going to baby the younger one. Like, isn't that what happens in larger families? The younger one gets all of the extra resources by the end. Yeah. But, but by the end, those early years are just seen yeah. with the golden child being favored. And yeah. Wow. The early years, like, my, my wife is the youngest of three and she says, you know, her early life was like, yeah. People kind of like left me alone. Like, I didn't. Whatever. I didn't get a lot of baths. Right. But, <laughs> but as the as the the youngest, you do tend to benefit from like the resources kind of cascade down. That's to right. You well, and, you let the oldest one watch the R rated movie, and you're like the younger one. Fine, whatever. She yeah, can yeah, see yeah, it too. Yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. care because you've done so much work on the older child. You figure they can basically co-parent at that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of allegories here. So the youngest chicks tend to be the most colorful ones, and this has to do with pigments that mothers add to their yolks. 
and that gets dumped into the eggs. Wait, are... So the mother, like the color of the baby isn't just evolutionary. The mother is saying, I'm painting you and then I'm painting you. and Not intentional. It's still being done in utero. What's amazing about this, it's complicated, right? None of this really makes a lot of sense. And it seems to be kind of, you know, we're drawing parallels to human evolutionary <laughs> <Right>. mistakes, essentially. <laughs> you know, none of this really works for them. It's highly inefficient. Like, uh, it's just a bad idea, but they're persisting with it. <laughs> <laughs> Evolution is strange. Things are not good for fancy baby coots. Yeah, the American coot really needs to get its act together. Good yeah, luck. Good luck, coots. That's right. Give it good another 100,000 years. Good luck to the young years. coots, man. The young coots do not have a good They don't have a lot of shots. Deal going. But they're yeah. so cute. They're cute? <laughs> How can they be sad? They're cute. How can they be sad? They're birds. I don't know. <laughs> Next do, do, do birds cry? Doves, I do, I doves, doves cry. Do. Doves yes. cry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I stepped on that joke. I'm very sorry. That's a, no, 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 no. <laughs> that, it was very worth stepping on. It was... <laughs> All right, next link. Next link. Okay, so we've got a bit of a, I've got a bit of a theme going uh, this week. This article is called The Inevitable Rise of the Hologram Rock Concert. <gasps> now, this is on uh, Experience Magazine, article by Jim Sullivan. So I think most of us will recall that uh, there was a big viral buzz in 2012 uh, when a hologram of the long dead uh, Tupac Shakur yes. appeared at Coachella as part of a performance with Dr. Dre and, okay. and Snoop Dogg. Um, so they were performing and then poof, a hologram of Tupac Shakur appears for a couple minutes. It was much hyped, but I don't know if it was very well received. Well, and was it believable? Like, it did it look good or did it look like... I think, uh... I think from, you know, in that setting where there's a pretty significant distance from mm. the, the audience to the stage, I think it probably looked pretty good. It was a more, as the article gets into, it was a more uh, primitive form of hologram technology compared to what they're using right now. But yeah, I think the response to it, it I mean, it was a big sensation. The video shock. got tons of views mm -hmm. and people wrote articles about it. But I think it was sort of ambivalently received. I myself saw it and thought, great, here's some new kind of like impressive but deeply unsettling kind of reality challenging digital novelty. But Artie Tudor, who is the CEO of Base Hologram, he saw it uh, and he essentially thought, well, what a waste. I mean, you've got this hologram of a beloved performer and you're only going to put it out there for two minutes and only as a support to two That's right. famous Tup living people. Tupac deserves better. This is the show. This is the show right here. So Base Hologram is one of a couple of outfits that are currently playing with the idea. I mean, not playing with. I mean, these are happening. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's still a very new thing. Uh, the idea of full hologram concerts. They've been touring uh, in recent months holograms of Roy Orbison, oh. Buddy Holly, uh, Maria Callas. See, and this gets back to the copyright thing, too, because it's like you got to pay for that guy's image. Yeah. You can't just put Buddy Holly up there and be like, OK, I, right, you know. Right. But then once you once you own it, you know, right, do you, you can... just own it in perpetuity. Well, those artists make it seem like they're targeting a demographic not usually known for going to see hologram concerts. Well, maybe the they're age. tricking them. Maybe they're just like, Buddy Holly's back. Well, Don't question oh. it. The concerts have been uh, successful. They, they're planning a tour for Whitney Houston. Mm, uh, they were also okay. working on an Amy Winehouse tour. But alas, I, th I think it was deemed to be too uh, soon. Too soon. Yeah. <laughs> Too soon. There's definitely an element of tastelessness to like, oh, you're dead, but who cares? Like, we're still going to, yeah. you just, you know. But that's yeah. also often perpetuated on, you know, by the estates themselves. Like, sure. I know, like, there's that Amy Winehouse yeah. documentary that came out that mm -hmm. I think her father was somewhat involved in. Yeah. I mean, 
if you're the if you're the kid widow widower whatever of you know some famous dead musician i mean why would you want to work a day in your life when you can <laughs> continue just... to just sell their image? i mean i mean i i'm not i don't want to presume i would be any better if i was in that <laughs> that's thing. right if you had I, that available oh, to you so wait i could make millions and millions of dollars and never do anything or you know i could get, an get a honest real job, job no. like a there are also teams of professionals that are probably urging folks to make this decision too because just like the copyright issue it's not just you know the estate owner, but it may be the attorneys who are drawing up the contract. Sure, for... and the concert promoters. Lots of people yeah. stand to make money yeah. off of it. And sure. and the and the the possibility of just forever milking this like you know beloved IP. I mean, I, I hate to refer to. I mean, in the sense these what it is. performers, yeah. these people, their images, their voices, their well, and they... way they moved is being used as a kind of intellectual property that you can capitalize on. And you can get a whole new group of fans as well. Because if you get like the young kids discovering Buddy Holly and going like, oh, yeah, I just went to see a concert. It was hip. You don't know anything about it. (laughs) And then you you extend the the value of those things. Right. Right. And Buddy Holly will never he's not around to complain. He's not around to say you can't do that. Um, He's not around to say maybe, oh, I've got some good ideas of how to make this better. I mean, there might be some people who would, you know, be super gung ho about he's not around. He's not around to ruin people's nostalgia by putting out new albums. (laughs) Right. Getting fat and playing in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Pulling a Morrissey, supporting far right groups (laughs) and then just tarnishing your legacy. more. Yeah. The argument goes that like, oh, I mean, these are essentially just recordings. Like, how is this different from going to see a concert film? Right, or of, playing it on the radio, even though yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it does seem that you get to a point where the, the, the differences kind of add up to something uncanny and unsettling. The holographic performers are these you know, painstakingly rendered CGI marionettes that are constructed using recorded footage of the performer in question. Real recordings of the singer's voices used, but it's they're backed up by a live band and live backup singers oh, okay. as part of these concerts. This is not necessarily just for dead performers. ABBA, who famously has been turning down billion-dollar offers for reunion tours for the past few decades, did agree to reunite in a studio for the first time in 35 years in order to be digitally mapped and imaged. They're like, we can take one day of each other. And then send send our holograms out to make all the money. Yeah, yeah, because wow. it, 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 the, the idea Touring is, that is hard be a... work. That's a great idea yeah, if you're and, older. And Bjorn, uh, uh, Bjorn Ulves, uh said, you know, hey, I one of the reasons we don't want to perform is I don't want people to see me, you know, as an old man. I want some people to remember ABBA as ABBA. And this is a great way, the Avatar tour, oh, as it is called. That's dark. Which has not happened yet, but, oh, uh, but, but it, is, will. It, is, it is planned. And they've got the, the clones of Bjorn, Benny, Agnetha, and Frida in the vault. And they look just like they did, you know, at the height of their fame. And yeah. they're, they're ready to go out to perform without any rehearsals, without I'd... any complicated... Right. No one's going to get writers. sick. No one's going to lose their you know, voice. No one has to pick, you know, the M&Ms out of the bowl backstage <laughs> or whatever. I just, by the way, got that Avatar was a pun for Avatar and not a pun on abattoir. <laughs> oh, that <laughs> makes it even darker. Yeah. At first when you said it, I was like, oh, that's really morbid, you guys. But then I realized, um, yes. Yeah, but I think I, I'm, I'm with you. I like the, uh, the double entendre there. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I don't think there's any way that this is not going to start happening on a much more oh, it's major definitely coming. Scale. It's like all of these things that we envision, and we're like, I don't know. It's all coming. Yeah. it's all going to happen eventually. I mean, there was this. There was a big stink when that 
was it Magic City Films, which is like a, a smaller kind of production company, announced that they were going to use a CGI clone of James Dean yeah. in a movie that it, it, yeah. some Vietnam War movie they're mm -hmm. putting together. They got permission from his estate to do this. And and a lot of people were objecting to it. But of course, I mean, you know, Disney already they did reanimated the... digital versions of Peter Cushing and Carrie and Fisher Carrie... in the most recent one, too. Yeah. Like some of it in The Rise of Skywalker was actual footage and some of it was actual CGI. And by huh. kind of combining the two... They managed to get the full performance. Yeah. Or at least help blur the lines between Uncanny Valley and our ability to discern what is actually CGI. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, like, why on earth would you deal with the complications of a real performer? Why on earth would you deal with the trouble of having to, like, build the career of a, a new performer mm -hmm. when you can... Just rely on the old ...use stuff. an image that people already know and like? Yeah. Right. I, I welcome the the hacking that is going to inevitably occur as this goes mainstream as well. Like you describe them as, you know, essentially marionettes. Well, the idea of marionettes, you can make them pretty much do anything. And you once... make Buddy Holly do Tupac's performance. Just mix them up, switch them, you know. It's the 2020 Teddy Ruxpin we've all been waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're I think we're definitely we're overdue for, uh, you know, a Dune style like you know, Butlerian jihad against like. <laughs> All, I mean, you know, it might be time to just think about starting to consider any reproductions of an image of a human being as being essentially a, a craven blasphemy that, that needs to be. <laughs> because I, I, I think we, we need an overcorrection here. You're on board to, with to, it. To get back to somewhere sane. I wish you the best of luck in this near apocalyptic yeah. reversion. To no, a mo no more time. photos, guys. All no right. more photos. I will get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This one was really kind of a fascinating, touching thing. It was a long form narrative called This Plane Accidentally Flew Around the World from uh, John Bull on Medium.com. So the uh, <laughs> I just I'm just picturing a, a plane after like right, like, whoops, like 20 oh no, hours of right. flight. Whoops. Oh, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> I just kind of zoned out there for, <laughs> for a minute. It's a little disingenuous. They did not accidentally fly around the world. But what happened was so Pan American, obviously the uh, the plane company, their big thing, the reason they became a massive air travel company was in the 1930s. They were the first one to start offering these long what we would think of were like you're taking these little hops and it takes a week, but like they could get you to New Zealand, for example. And that was their big thing was they were like, you in California can go to New Zealand on the other side of the world. And everyone's like, oh, wow. And so they would they would have like 10, 15 hours in the air at a time. These things were seaplanes. So they would land in the water at a harbor, basically on these mm. islands along the way refuel, get more food, do whatever. And then the next day they'd take off, they'd keep going and they'd get you all the way to these far off destinations. And very wealthy people did it. And it was super fun, I guess. So they're doing this in the 1930s. And this is the story of a particular plane that was leaving from San Francisco and had done a couple of hops. They'd hopped through Hawaii. They'd gone on to New Caledonia. And as they landed and sort of checked in, like, oh, hey, radio, what's going on? Give us the news. They got the news that Pearl Harbor had oh. been bombed. Mm. And they're all sort of, you know, certainly shocked as to like, what what does this mean for our country? What does this mean for our families, et cetera? But they also were like, what does this mean for our plane? Right. Because we can't make the return trip if Hawaii is being occupied. We don't know what's going on there. We can't fly back. And in the midst of trying to figure all this out, they got a radio communique that said, you know, Japanese attack Hawaii, do not come back, implement plan A. And a. everyone in the, in, the, in the cockpit's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and the pilot pulls out this brown envelope 
And apparently Pan Am had been cooperating with the government for several weeks at this point because they all sort of knew like this might be coming. We don't know, but we're sort of preparing. And they had issued every pilot on every flight for the past several weeks these sealed instructions on what to do in the case of plan A. And nobody had read them. Nobody had any idea. So the pilot's like, well, okay," And he opens it up. It basically said we at Pan Am have agreed to work with the government. If you're reading this, we're at war. This plane now belongs to the military. You are flying a protected military vehicle. Your number one goal is to remove all insignias from this thing to make it not identifiable and get it back so that the military can use it. So first, they continued on to New Zealand, dropped all their passengers off. They're like, we're done with you. Find your own way home. And then they said, "Okay, but these flights, you know, this is very early aviation technology. They could only fly so fast. They could only fly so far. And they said, we can't make it. We can't skip Hawaii. We can't just go right over that. We can't go around it. It's just not possible. How are we possibly going to get this back to the mainland where they can use it? And they said, all right, you have your instructions. Go the other way around from New Zealand over to New York. And the pilots were like, "Okay, first of all, we don't have maps. This is not a part of the world we fly over. We have no maps. We don't know what we're doing. And also, we're flying into areas that are occupied, not necessarily occupied by governments that we're at war with, but they're occupied by other governments. We're Mm going to fly into Dutch territory. We're going to fly into all these places where, number one, we don't speak the language. And number two, we don't even know the radio frequencies. Like We know (laughs) nothing. And they're like, yeah, but we're at war. This is what you're going to do. And so they went to the New Zealand library and said to the librarian, give us all your maps. And she's like, "Mm, what? And he's like, yeah, all of your maps, because we have to chart a flight plan that we've never examined before. And by the way, if you have anything on wind you know, patterns and currents, that would be helpful too. <laughs> and they figured out a hop, that, you know, it had a series of hops and it had a couple of hops that were super dangerous uh-huh. because these planes being seaplanes, they had no landing gear. So flying over land was actually super dangerous. Right. And they had to make a couple of really long trips like over the mainland of Africa where they're like, something goes wrong, we're just dead. So this you raises know? the possibility of an exciting like nega sully situation where it's like, oh God, we've got to make a dangerous <laughs> land landing. They landed in the Nile. That was part of the oh! deal. Like, <laughs> it was part so of it. epic. It was, it's, and I would really recommend going to read it. It's a three part long form article. It's very long. Crazy things happened to these guys. It was really fascinating. They like an engine exploded midair at one point. They at one point they managed to land without communicating with this Dutch military guy who was like, you know, he cooler heads prevailed. He's like, don't shoot him down just yet. Let's wait and see. They landed. They came in. They explained the situation. He's like, oh, we thought it was very strange when you landed out in that part of the water because that's heavily mined. <gasps> and they were like, oh, we did not know. And he's like, well, you lived. Uh, wow. You know, and of course, this thing had special fuel and they couldn't get it from anywhere. And there's just a whole bunch of really cool things. And ultimately, in the end, they made it. Uh, they got all the way around. They flew into LaGuardia and they're like, yeah, we're from New Zealand. And he's like, no, that doesn't make sense. He goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> Tell me about it. And apparently the pilots who did it, like at the time, it was technically the first commercial plane to circumnavigate the globe. Wow. And the pilots who did it, these were all, you know, just commercial civilian pilots. None of these guys were military. And... They just sort of went on about that. You know, they just didn't think it was that important. And the guy who wrote the article was like, I tracked everybody down. I talked to some people. These guys did some interviews and they all were just like, any pilot would have done it. And he's like, I don't think they would have. Um, Did they get any like commendations from the government after the service? I don't believe so. I think it was really just considered like this is what everyone does at wartime. And yeah, you did a good job. Pat on the back, but just nothing special. Nothing even from the private sector, from their employers directly. Like, I don't know. Employee of the month, probably. And part of it is... (laughs) 
And part of it as well was like, you're at war now. You can't tell people where you are or what yeah. you're doing. So they didn't even get a chance to call their families Ooh. and say, by the way, I've been sucked into this. I have to go do this thing. Oh. Pan Am contacted the families and said they're alive. But last you know, they flew over Hawaii, which is a little bit of a hotbed right now. Oh. And we're not going to tell you anything else. And we can't tell you when they're going to come home or if they're going to come home. What was the duration of this worldwide? Total, it was about three weeks. It was one week from San Francisco to uh, New Zealand, which was about what it was supposed to be. Uh-huh. But the other flight, the other leg of the trip was longer. And also they had some issues where like yeah. they had to fix a blown out engine at one point and they, you know, oh they Two would weeks. spend a yeah. few days at each location. Two weeks Two- is not bad. No, that's yeah. a lot quicker than I would have guessed based on just what you've touched on. Well, and they did not sleep for most of it. That was one of the things they kept talking about was like this, you know, do you have to do this 20 hour flight over Africa? You don't just have to keep the plane in the air for 20 hours. You have to stay awake for 20 hours, oh. you know, and they were doing these back to back as soon as they landed, they'd like, you know, get three hours of sleep and then they'd take off again. And oh. it was just super, super rough. Oh. It would have been very tempting to just chill out on the beach in Auckland right. for, so, you know. for, for, for a few years. <laughs> yeah. See what, uh, see just wait the thing out. Yeah. yeah. Just hold on for a bit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I'm sorry. This, I mean, this is, this has excellent movie potential. I mean, while we're talking about like. I was reading this. I was like, this has got to be a movie. Infin- I mean, come on. We're talking about infinitely exploitable IP. The ultimate <laughs> IP, of course, as we know, is World War II. Yeah. 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 It's a it's a franchise and a brand. Tom that, Hanks is ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, next link. Next, next link. link. Lori Fagan for the CBC has an article how VR is letting palliative patients complete their bucket list. Oh. So we're, we're going to take it out of kind of the apocalypse and into the sort of, I don't know, cheerfully morbid or, you know, <laughs> yeah. optimistically morbid. Touchingly morbid instead of just sad morbid. There it is. Touchingly morbid. So have you guys seen that episode of Black Mirror San Junipero? Mm-mm. No. No. It was so. Are you familiar with Black Mirror in general? Sure. Like super dark yeah. technologies ruining ruining yeah. our lives. Here's how to have anxiety and fear about everything. Blah blah blah. <laughs> right. But there's this one um, episode they have called San Junipero, which actually has a happy ending that follows this. And and I mean, it's basically turning this into a reality where there's this woman. She's in hospice care. Um, she's been paralyzed most of her life, and we're at a point in technology in the Black Mirror universe where they've got these completely immersive VR worlds that give you, you know, tactile sensations. Or, exactly. Yeah. You can basically live and choose what era you want to live in. And so Santa Junipero is kind of like the 80s. And it's a great episode if you've never seen it. Very LGBTQ friendly. I've rewatched it many times because it does have a happy ending and I have a hard time with Black Mirror. But we're starting to get into that. At least in Canada, there's the Care for Hospice in Ontario. They launched a fundraising campaign to cover the cost of two VR headsets. It was about five grand. And 15 residents have used them to date. And basically, it's giving people in palliative care a chance to check things off their bucket list, like see the northern lights if you've never gotten a chance to see that. And you have completely limited mobility in your time. Right. You're not going to get to do it, but here's at least a, yeah. a way to experience it, sort of. Exactly. So they've got one person has seen the northern lights. Um, they've got some uh, video modules of like kayaking in Algonquin Park. Uh, one woman in a wheelchair got to experience something she's never been able to do, which was ride a horse. And so the mm. whole perspective, like, actually makes it feel like you're riding on the horse and things. Mm. And obviously, our VR technology is still in its infancy. We're not getting into that sensation or tactile feedback. But it's doing a lot to help people in times of real dismal need. That's nice. See, that's one of the good uses of VR I can get behind. I'm totally. Like, yeah. You go and have that experience, Grandma. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. So um, they're hoping to start using more VR technology that have cameras to do family events like weddings for people who can't attend. And you know, oh, so like a live feed where like somebody with the camera is at the wedding and they can just feed it straight into their eyeballs. Yeah. And if if not a live feed, then something recorded so they can at least experience what it was like to be there, kind of like in a Harry Potter Pensieve or something like that. Oh, so it would also be it would be like a 360 camera situation where you can look around and see what you want to see. Exactly. And if Neat. you know everybody's in attendance, you've captured everyone appropriately, you can just look around and say, oh, there's so-and-so and there's so oh, and, you know, right. just kind of never liked yeah. him. Well, <laughs> exactly. what if you go to your grandpa and you're like, grandpa, what would you like to do? And he's like, I always kind of wanted to bang Jane Mansfield. That's right. Yeah. You're like, well, I don't know if we're going to give you that one, grandpa. <laughs> no, but I, I bet know. you the technology for that already exists. Oh, for sure. VR porn is already definitely a thing. If yeah. the holograms and the deep fakes have gotten really good, I see no reason <laughs> to let grandpa Joe fulfill that bucket list dream. <laughs> or what if grandpa's like, I always kind of wish I had the guts to kill my boss. <laughs> you know, when you're at the end of life and yeah. you've got a bucket you, list. You're saying go for it. Anything's game. <laughs> I, you know, I, I fail to see what the harm of that is in that particular context. That's yeah, right. That no. guy is not going to get any wrong ideas and go no. and be affected by it. <laughs> He's already got the wrong idea. Let's get it out of his system so he can pass in peace. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> very much. Very much agreed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a short little article. So next link. Next link. Hey. Hey. Can we still use quantum entanglement to communicate faster than light? I'm going to say no. No, we still can't use quantum oh. entanglement to communicate faster than light is the name of this article. I like, <laughs> I love these articles, this style of titling uh, the, articles. The answer to like, a question title is like, always no. Yeah, I know what you're thinking and no. Like, <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about that, but I'm, I feel very chastened. Uh, this is by Ethan Siegel. It's on Forbes. Uh, this is just going to be in the series of like Curtis tries to understand uh, quantum physics. <laughs> you always get the quantum articles. Yeah. But well, I appreciate I just... that you're actually trying to further your own uh, like education about it by consistently picking them to like build on this body of growing knowledge. Yeah, I'm I'm getting so smart, guys. I'm getting so, <laughs> so smart. Um so this is based on a principle of quantum physics whereby on, on a quantum level, like these tiny, tiny, tiny little particles can be in some mysterious way entangled with each other such that, you know, they have a kind of observable relation uh, where if you know something about the speed or position of one particle, you're better able to predict the speed and position of the other one. So there is some kind of relation. And it has been found by scientists that this holds if you start with an entangled pair and then somehow move them farther and farther apart. Right. They're like soulmates. Like no matter how far apart they are, they're still connected. Yes, like still, one affects the other in one In some mysterious way, one is able to affect the other. So the, the idea is that, well, theoretically, couldn't you get some kind of faster than light communication by moving some to one location and moving some to some other distant location. Yeah, you'd still have to do the speed of light thing to get them there. But once they were there, it's like, oh, boom, you got your wormhole communicator. So yeah. Basically piggybacking on whatever special connection they have to see if it is faster than light. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, it doesn't work because um, <laughs> the once not. you mess with the particles on, on one end, you're essentially breaking the entanglement. I mean, you can take the particles apart and you can just observe them. And oh, but once you actually try to observation make it do of something. One, but like once you try to actually make it do something such that you could potentially like Affect um, the other create one. a message of some kind by like putting all the particles on one end in a positive state. Spin and right for yes, spin yeah, left yeah, for no. Some, some kind of crazy. 
It changes them in a fundamental way and essentially breaks the entanglement. You're responsible for breaking up their relationship is what you're saying. I was totally Mm -hmm. thinking of this magical bond between these quantum particles as love. Like the entire time that you've been talking about them, like this special thing that brings them together, that keeps them. It's a a form of love that we just haven't scientifically articulated yet. (laughs) The fifth element is love. I mean, we knew all along. That was the journey. That, that was one w- of the guys in Captain Planet, wasn't it? It's was like a, a heart. heart. Yeah, he yeah. was the guy. We yeah. keep promoting this narrative, and yet when we come down to our scientific experiments, we're leaving out this really essential ingredient. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently not because it doesn't work. <laughs> well, because well, love just is. I mean, you can't like. You can't mess with you love. Can't, oh, that's true because we're messing love with it, it. Love is not a telephone. That's right. You can't use love. Love is not a radio. <laughs> Love is not is not is not a tool for hyper light communication. So sorry, uh, science fiction writers, you gotta you come gotta up with something a, else. You gotta get a different conceit, or, or 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 like Neil deGrasse Tyson will send you a chiding tweet. I guess right? about your your movie. <laughs> Real arbiter you still of love. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us for this first episode of the new year. There are still a ton of articles that we didn't get to, some of the interesting ones we did not get to talk about today. The non-human living inside you, why the quantum internet should be built in space, Curtis, and (laughs) what college was like for Harvard Law's first deafblind graduate. So there's some very cool things out there on DamnInteresting.com. We will be back next week. In the meantime, we hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard today. We have a few new goodies available on Patreon, some kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, a few photos and recordings. And we hope that you will go and support us because I think that the last couple of years have taught us if you don't support the things you like, they will go away. Studio space is not free, and we would really like to keep doing this, and we hope that you're enjoying it and you would really like to support us. Uh, specifically, I'm talking to David. Yes, you, David, listening. I know you think I can't possibly be talking to this woman right now, but you are. This is your never-ending story moment. I need you to get online and help us out because otherwise we're not going to be able to be here forever. Yeah. So we're counting on you, David, sitting with your earbuds right now. Do the right thing. We hope that you will join us next week. Until then, I'm Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.